our meditation for this evening. Visualize a ray of the infinite light flowing into you from behind through your medulla oblongata at the base of the brain. Let it flow into your body and activate everything you do and say. God, remember, is in all things the real doer. Meditating on this thought will help you to realize its truth. Feel the divine ray flowing into and through your body. Concentrate especially on the forward flow of that energy to the point of superconscious awareness between the eyebrows. Then imagine it flowing out to the world through the spiritual eye, blessing others, blessing your surroundings, blessing the whole world. Let's feel that for a moment. The infinite energy flowing in, animating us, giving us our life, filling every cell of our being and then flowing through us out through the spiritual eye in blessing to the whole world. Now repeat after me this affirmation. Thou, Lord, art the doer. Energize and through energy magnetize Everything that I say and do. Thou, Lord, art the doer. Energize and through energy magnetize. Everything that I say and do. Thou, Lord, art the doer. Energize and through energy magnetize. Everything that I say and do. Om. Peace. Amen. So everyone, we play, as I was saying, the finale music. This is lesson 26 of 26 lessons, The Right Use of Ego. This is really a a fabulous lesson. And Swamiji, it's called The Right Use of Ego. And Swamiji himself was a little bit pleased with himself in saying that uh, you would think writing 26 lessons you'd sort of begin to lose energy toward the end. But he said he's some of the longest and some of the best lessons are right at the end and this certainly qualifies up there. So after this entire course, which I'm not going to be able to summarize or even want to summarize, but um, we've sort of moved through all these different ways of working in the world. That's really what we're talking about. You know, this course is not about your private meditations. This is not about your, your chanting and your practice of Kriya. This is really um, Kriya made manifest. This is the cold light of day. This is um, the principle that I've always described as what a, when I try to tell people what Ananda village is like, what would it be like if you created a whole society in which everyone understands that the purpose of life is to realize God, what would it look like? And there's no way that you can imagine on this planet what it would look like, because there really is no place on the planet except for Ananda village. And then to a lesser extent, the other communities, but that one is the most highly developed and the most um, all-inclusive. 
is, is that's what happens when everybody lives with the God-realization as the center point and then does everything else because it's not an ashram setting where people have just retired from the world. And because uh, God has never seen fit to give us very much money, we've had to be very engaged in that most fundamental of human activities, which is earning money. And I've said many times, Swami Kriyananda's writing of this course is not theoretical. This is something that he himself has had to deal with, you know, on a scale that few of us can even imagine. Because he's not only, he's had to generate money to develop a worldwide organization, and then over time, hundreds, and then, you know, gradually thousands of people really rely upon what he does. Those who are part of the Ananda communities, literally people rely upon him in the sense that as the leader of the enterprise, the enterprise has to keep going or else many of us who have cast our lot in with it would have been out on the streets, especially in the early years. But just still, it becomes a a network of responsibility, which many people would shirk under that responsibility or, or certainly feel strained under it instead of constantly rising to meet it more. So what Swamiji is trying to summarize in this last lesson is this dilemma that I think every spiritual person faces sooner or later, which is all right, especially if you're a self-realizationist, because you start out with this premise that the world is not what it seems, that this world is an illusion, that it's just a dream, that we're just waves on the ocean, that when we finally uh, awaken from this, we realize that it never even happened. And so the obvious thought is, well, why bother? I mean, everyone has thought about it. And the whole scripture of the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the most fundamental scriptures of the self-realization teaching, is exactly that dilemma, which is comforting, because it helps us to realize that even a great devotee like Arjuna faced exactly that issue. There he was, and you read the whole story of the Mahabharata, of which the Gita is this little piece. The story of the Mahabharata is the war between cousins, and absolutely everything that the good guys, the Pandavas did, to avoid having to go into violent war against their cousins um, to have what belonged to them. But their cousins were bullies. And no matter how much the Pandavas did, the bullies just took more and more and more until an honorable person has to say, I can't, I can't allow myself to be treated like this. But after this huge epic leading up to the point where they just have to go to war, there's no choice, right on the eve of battle, Arjuna says, I don't really think I want to do this. Because it's just too much. And it's literally the external event that's being explained there, which is to participate in life fully and to accept uh, the conditions of life as they come to you and be willing to face them with courage and energy. And it's also a symbolic story of the soul's journey and the need for us to realize that we will never make serious spiritual progress until we, we grapple in, in, until we do battle with the contradictory forces within us and until we have the courage to, to recognize that many of those qualities within us that in the story of the Mahabharata and the Gita are the cousins and the relatives of Arjuna the warrior, but within us it's there are our own people. It's my inclination to do this, my love of doing that, my habit of doing this, my attachment to this particular person, my comfort in being in this particular environment. All those different elements of ourself that we're so used to and identify with and yet are not 
um, supportive of the of the deeper aspiration to go to go into the spirit. And it's not that those things are evil. It's not that we're sinful or should be ashamed for liking them. It's just a very strong habit that we have. One of the great forces in the in the story of the Gita and the Mahabharata is Drona. Master interpreted the story of the Gita symbolically. Drona, who's who's a very powerful force on the wrong side of the story against the Pandavas, is the intellect influenced by past habits, the attachment to past habits, and the tremendous effort in the story of the Mahabharata for Arjuna to finally face and conquer Drona and win against Drona. And actually the character that's able to slay him is the calm inner light. That's Drishtad Yumna. He was born to destroy the habits from the past, and it's the awareness of that calm inner light that finally extricates us from all these habits of the past. Now, in the context of what, what just to finish about the Mahabharata, so the, the dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna is Arjuna saying, I don't want to engage in this battle, and Krishna explains to him all the reasons why that everything that he aspires to, the kingdom in all forms, will only come to him if he faces into the challenge that's offered to him and with his whole heart and absolute courage, absolutely fearlessly, does whatever he has to do. That it isn't um, egoic. I mean, that's not exactly the word that's being used, but it's part of that. It's not the wrong action to strongly stand in your life and use all your willpower to move um, your reality forward. So... When we're talking about the business world, when we're talking about making your way in the world, especially since the whole subject is making money, that is a subject that's really filled with the wrong kind of energy. And so Swamiji sort of wants us to really get a clear picture about the difference between being ambitious, aggressive, successful in the world in such a way that it binds us to delusion and to carry out those same actions, but in such a way that they bring us closer to God-realization. Um, I've, I've often commented, and it's worth really remembering again and again, you cannot learn these spiritual teachings without living examples. The divine law that you have to have a guru is a many-faceted law, but one aspect of it is you, one needs to see what these truths look like personified in a human being. Because it's so easy to misinterpret just reading words. Words, they they sound like this, but you have to see it demonstrated in front of you. When I talk about how I came onto this spiritual path and my commitment to this path came, as most of you know, from my first meeting with Swami Kriyananda. And I had come to the point and had been stuck there for several years with a commitment to the principles, but no ability even to imagine how you personified that, how you actually lived that. The only example that I really saw of really true spirituality was inspiring but a little confusing to me. And I vividly remember it. It was, it was this saintly man who just crossed my path. He was a, a swami in the order of the Ramakrishna order. And uh, in, in those years, I used to go to the Hollywood Church of the Vedanta Society not of SRF, but of the Vedanta Society. And one Sunday, I was at that church, and the speaker was a guest from India. And it was this particular Swami. I have no idea who he is. I saw him that one time. I've never seen him again. 
and he spoke with an accent, and he gave a talk, and expected actually then, I this mentions a little bit about this, incoherent a talk to have found my consciousness just changed, and I felt more and more joyful. It was really the first darshan I'd ever had in person. Just this sense of expanded awareness that was just going out, and feeling happier and happier. And the more the man babbled on, the more I just could sense this overflowing joy from him. And I still remember shaking his hand and the sort of look he had in his eye. He just, his eyes were just somewhere else. I'd never seen anything like it and I've never forgotten it. But he was not much of an example for me because he was Indian, he was a monk. He didn't have um, the, it just, I just couldn't figure out, I wasn't advanced enough. Also, I didn't belong to him. But I just couldn't figure out how to do it. So he floated out there like this anomaly, just somewhere out here. But it didn't help me living in San Francisco, getting up and going down to the financial district, working as a legal secretary. I just could not really put these two realities together until I met Swami Kriyananda. And I I recognized in him, of course, I belonged to him. So I naturally recognized him. You you recognize your own because it vibrates. But it, it also... The way he exemplified the spiritual teaching matched my in, intuitive longing for it. And, and those, that had certain qualities to it. And those are the qualities that Swami talks about here. Very dynamic, very creative, very committed. And also committed not merely to personal self-realization, but simultaneously committed to serving the world. And I don't think I could have really listed all those things out exactly, although maybe if I'd tried, because I, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't even know exactly that I was looking until I saw it. But when it, it was personified in front of me, oh, that's what it looks like when you really live it. So what Swamiji is trying to give us an idea of in this particular lesson, oh, that's what it really looks like. So he, he spends a certain amount of time at the beginning just talking about this fundamental confusion that we have, that people have. And he, he really says several times, if you really fit this negative model, you're probably not reading lesson 26 of this course. You probably dropped out a long time ago. But he, he talks about how so many people pursue success in the world for the sake of the importance that they feel that it will give them. And he makes a very interesting statement. The more people concentrate on their own position, he says, the more they tend to turn to think in terms of things, not people. And when you think about people who are very concerned about their own position, one of the things that characterizes them is they tend to be rude and inconsiderate as a rule, don't they? Because they're thinking about things. They're thinking about the inanimate reality of their own position, even though it's personified in them, but they've defined themselves by this external thing. And they have to hold that position. They have to maintain it. Swami makes an interesting comment here. Um, he says, people who are very concerned about their self-importance are often unconscious of how many people gently mock them, how much gentle mockery it, it attracts. And he tells that story of this very arrogant oil geologist who was part of his father's company, who was so proud in the way he did things. And when he was boasting about something, someone said, you know, Ed, or whatever his name is, you must be one of the greatest geologists in the whole world. And Ed was so involved in himself that he didn't know he was being teased. Well, in oil, maybe, he said like that. You know, he just didn't have enough sense even to know that they were making fun of him. 
but they weren't really sincerely praising him. But he, Swamiji just says, okay, if that's what you're looking for, if your sense of success is to have power over others, to be considered important, then go ahead. Because no one can tell you that that's not going to work. The only thing that's going to happen is that over time, you're going to try to live through that reality and you're going to discover you know what it will and won't give you, as simply as that. So what Swamiji wants us to understand, and he, he tries, he gives us a very, there's two parts to this lesson. The first part of it is fundamentally who and what are we? Why were we born? Why are we here? And of course, we've touched on this many times but in, through the course of these lessons, but he really hits it philosophically in this one. And the second thing is, here are 20 practical principles given that that's our reality. This is, these are the rules of behavior that we should follow. And so the reality that Swamiji starts with is he starts with really trying to understand what is a human being and where do I come from and what am I about and what is this individuality because you see our individuality is the key to the whole thing because it's because we find ourselves seemingly individual that we're, we're forced to go on this quest, this quest for fulfillment, this quest for success, this quest for money. It, because we're out here all by ourselves and, and we seem to need to, to function as individuals. And at the same time, we have this philosophical remembrance of being uh, uh, an understanding of being part of something much greater. It really is very confusing, which is why Arjuna ended up there in the middle of the battlefield. So the, the point that, that Swamiji has made, and he's made this repeatedly through the lessons and I think that for myself, studying and teaching these as I have for these 41 weeks, whatever it is now, um, there's a few themes that he's hit on this that have, have gradually become more and more clear to me. And one of them is this single thought, that spirit is center everywhere. That, this, that no matter where you are, you're standing at the center because everything manifests from the inside out. And our whole understanding of who we are and how we should move is realize that there's always this center point of spirit within us. And Swamiji tells us again, God does not create by assembling from the outside. Even that picture that we have of being self-important, of thinking about your position, there's sort of you and then you try to bring all these realities in from the outside. I have this position, I drive this car, people stand up when I come into the room, I just make suggestions and they do what I say. I laughed one day when I realized, these are, these are these adult realizations that take you a long time to understand. Undoubtedly, Swamiji says, by the time we're yogis, by the time we're serious about the spiritual path, we've had many, we've had many um, fulfillments, seeming fulfillments behind us because we wouldn't be so intent on renouncing things. We've been kings and queens and powerful people in the past. We've known what that's like, and that's why we're not drawn to it so much. But I have what Haridas lovingly called once a dictator personality. Haridas referred in the satsang at our house recently. He was at our house on Sunday night, he and Roma, and he was talking about being 1972 in Reno, Nevada, with Swamiji to advertise a program and that we, one of the ways we thought which would be so magnetic to draw people to Swami's program was to do a kirtan on the sidewalk in front of the Safeway. I remember it as the Kmart. He said it was the Safeway, but I think that doesn't really matter. 
So there we were, dressed in Indian clothes. He didn't throw that in, that, you know, we thought just being in the kurta pajama and saris would be like really magnetic sitting on the floor doing this kirtan on the ground at the Kmart. You can just picture it in Reno, Nevada. I thought it was a total lark. I mean, I just, I don't know, I guess I don't embarrass easily. Haridas considers it to be one of the most supremely embarrassing experiences of his life. And, in, and I love the way he told the story. And in his mind, he was desperately trying to think of something happy while he was doing this. So he thought, at least I'm not in my hometown. <laughs> that was all about the fact that he's about to be transferred to his hometown, which is right where he grew up in Los Angeles. <laughs> so now if he has to be in the Kmart, he will be in his hometown. But on that particular trip, there was a lot of chaos and I got tired of the chaos and I started giving orders and just making things happen. And I, I sort of like, I said to Haridas, I hope you don't mind, I'm just taking charge, because nobody was taking charge. He said, oh, well, he said, you always had kind of a dictator personality, that's all right with me. <laughs> My friend Arati and I, when we traveled once together, she has a dictator personality too. There were just two of us, we were on this two-week promotions trip, and we just, we're having, we're very good friends, but we were butting heads a lot, because she's always right, and so am I, and it was a little difficult as Haridas said, we hadn't yet... This is, these are Haridas stories. When Haridas worked with Vijay in Sacramento, when they were both in charge of the center equally, Haridas said he discovered that there can be two God's will. <laughs> 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 well, Arati and I were sort of like that, so we, we, we made a perfect, actually perfect arrangement. We played dictator for the day. And whoever, whosever day it was got to make all the decisions. And you could express your opinion, but the person in charge didn't have to listen to you at all. They could just decide whatever they wanted. And it was perfect. She, would, she made all the decisions one day. I made all the decisions the next day. We never had a, an ounce of conflict after that. Perfect. So having said all of this, where am I coming to? Oh, yes, I know what I was saying. With that personality, I remember once I finally figured out what it was about meetings that was so confusing to me, which is after I expressed my point of view, people kept discussing the issue. <laughs> I realized that for years and years that it just, like on a very subconscious level, it puzzled me. Pardon me, we have spoken. (laughs) It's so strange, these subconscious things we carry. You know, we've just, these just become habits of mind. This is the way we expect things to be. I grew up, I grew up Jewish. I was not a wasp. I was not like a central, you know, white Protestant American. And it's fun for me because I have a lot of friends who are wasps, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And it's a very different experience. They have just certain points of view, sometimes certain proprieties, you know, no white shoes after Labor Day kind of, the kind of things, just these proprieties that have to be met that never cross my mind. And it, it was partly the family I grew up in, but it was also really, truly, because you're Jewish, especially born in 1947, you know, right then, and for that whole, you know, period of time when I was growing up, there was a great sense of, you know, you really can't trust anybody. So you you never really enter into anybody else's world. You always stay just a little bit outside of it with your tennis shoes on. You know, you're just kind of ready to move at any point. And again, these are just like um, things inside of you. You don't even know you've got them. You just, that's just the way you move through life. And then you meet other people and you think, wow, they move so differently. Then you start realizing how arbitrary it is. That's why Swamiji once said, 
People might think it's great to marry someone who's just like them. He said, but it merely increases the delusion that you're right. (laughs) It's often much healthier to be in contact with somebody who's not like you. Gives you another point of view. Anyway, having said all that. Um, But then Swamiji really, what I was was starting to say is, there's really just this reality that the spirit manifests from the inside. This is what I was talking about. All these things that are put upon us from the outside the family way of being, the cultural way of being, the personality way of being, the, the habit that somehow there's something wrong with sitting on the sidewalk in front of the Kmart, you know, and doing a kirtan. I think it was Swami's way of just, basically just getting us to be less narrow-minded and self-conscious. You know, this is a good thing you're doing. Who cares whether other people do it or not? And remember the story of Master making the the women stand on the side of the road in their saris and eat watermelon without any utensils. <laughs> big slices of watermelon. He had them stand. He just bought them watermelon, cracked it open, handed them these big pieces and had these very proper young girls have to stand on the street just eating these big pieces of watermelon, just making this horrible mess. And there was no purpose in it except just, like, why not? It's just these, these little fussy things about what's appropriate and what isn't. Just go ahead, eat watermelon, get them to be a mess. Who cares? People will look at you. What does it matter? Well, when we're, we're talking about who we really are, what we really are is this inwardly inspired piece of divinity. And for our true nature to be really exposed and experienced, it has to be a growing awareness from within ourselves of who and what I really am. It can't be anything, oh, look, I'm a doctor now. Oh, look, I have four children now. Oh, look, I have this beautiful home. All these people respect me. And if you think about it, so much of the definition of the success in life is just that we go out and we get things, one thing or another. We get grandchildren. We get children. We get grandchildren. Our grandchildren you know, do this, they come home for the holidays, all these things. It's all that we're pulling something in from the outside. But, but the way we are created, our true self, is the spirit manifests from within us. And all that we ever really are is a manifestation of that spirit. Now what that also means, and he explains it in a very interesting way, is that our individuality, although it it is an apparent reality and is therefore, as as Master puts it, real on that level. It's not like it doesn't exist. On the vibration of consciousness in which we're functioning, there it is. But to, to continually emphasize that, we simply move farther and farther away from what we really are. And that's the confusion of this world because the direction of creation is from the subtle into the material, but then the direction is moving outward and our senses are moving outward and it's like the force of of maya, really, pushes us continuously outward. So we keep going, trying to acquire things from the outside and pasting them on and thinking that's going to be our success. Now, as we finish this whole discussion here, it's not that we should do nothing Because to do nothing is not to cooperate with the direction of spirit. But we have to think completely differently about what we're doing. And and Swami has this just fascinating discussion here about where individuality begins. The causal world, the astral world, and then finally the material world. 
And he, he describes the ego, which is the sense of individuality, is not our nature, but it's an element, as he puts it, of, our, of being manifested from the spirit. So there's, and these are, these are not realizations, but these are words as I speak them. I mean, they're not my realizations is what I mean, but they're fascinating ideas to meditate on. I was having fun meditating on this lesson. That there's the undifferentiated spirit, and then the spirit, whatever this means, has the idea that is going to make us. But when there's just an idea, nothing is very distinct, isn't it? If you just sort of think about something, you can sort of see the outlines, but it all sort of blends together because it's just ideas in your mind, isn't it? But when you begin to put more energy into it, then the distinct elements of whatever you're thinking about begin to show a lot more. So Swami talks about the idea, the ideational plane, which is the causal world. And so when we're on the, the level, when our own consciousness finally, our own self-awareness expands to that level, we still are, have a sense of our individuality, but simultaneously it's so obvious to us that we're just an idea and therefore our, our individuality is very indistinct. It's like we're a bubble on the ocean you might be able to still see that bubble, but the consciousness of the ocean is so profound. But as that, well, using the ocean, as the wave rises out of the ocean, you begin to see, oh, look, here's a very distinct wave. And even so much as these, these waves can sort of bump against each other. And so, so Master describes, Swamiji describes, in the astral world, as more energy begins to form around the idea of ourselves, the ego begins to get involved. I had this very interesting thought that the sense of self is just merely the idea of self whirling around itself. I mean, think of it like if you're, if you're talking to someone, it, it's so interesting. If it's not your problem, it's usually so obvious that it's not really a problem. But if it's your problem, it's really different. I've had experiences with people who are very sincerely upset about something, upset about some personal you know, loss, upset about an ambition, frustrated or a hurt feeling, and the person's sitting right in front of you. And whatever has happened has caused them to be upset. Of Not very long ago, I got caught up in an emo- emotional maelstrom, and I found myself just unable to extricate myself. And it was so interesting, um, because it doesn't happen to me as much as it used to. to but there I was, I, and I I, I knew that it was a delusion. I knew it was just in my own mind. I knew my reaction was a choice. And there was nothing I could do about it. I was just caught in it. Just spinning in it. And you see people, they're spinning in it. And when you're spinning in it, what are you spinning in? What about me? What about me? Look what happened to me. What about me? Look what happened to me. What about me? In other words, you're there because your thought is there. But as soon as you decide that you're fine and whoever did whatever they did to you just doesn't matter or whatever loss it is, you're just going to go on from it. What, what diminishes is that thought of yourself and what about me? Your distinct sense of, your, of yourself is separate, begins to fade and you see yourself in a bigger picture again. You realize that I don't have to have that to survive. I can relate here, I can relate there. So the self just begins to diminish. So there's the idea self, it comes into the astral world, and there's more of it. But still, it's a little thinner. You can sort of sense still that you have this unity because the vibrations are not so dense yet. But when you come down into the material world 
and actually have this immutable or less mutable body. In the astral world, the way they describe, the master describes it in the AY, Sri Teshwar describes the resur- after his resurrection. In the astral world, they say you can manifest any body you want. You can, you, can take, you can turn fruits into flowers and flowers into fruits. You can make any tree blossom with whatever you want. He's talking about a, on a higher astral plane, of course. But in other words, you have these distinct individual forms, but you're conscious enough of, of the fact that those forms are just an expression of a unified uh, reality so that you can keep shifting those forms. You see, the forms are there. So your own sense of yourself, too, then, would be a lot softer because you would see that everything can be shifted around. So I'm not so rigidly just what I am, but Master says the element of ego is still there. But when we come down to the material world, where it seems so apparent that this is who I am and that's who you are, the, the vibrations are so seemingly solid that that sense of individuality is much harder to overcome. And so the challenge once we're in a human body, is to, to live appropriately within that human body, but not to fall into the delusion of, of separateness, because the separateness seems so self-evident. And it even can, you know, the mind can get really mixed up thinking about this. This is why we need, as I was saying, the examples of the saints and the 20 principles that Swami gives us at the end of this lesson, how to have an ego, how to live in the material world, but how to live in the material world in such a way that instead of reinforcing the wrong kind of individuality, we're using our God-given force to expand our awareness into a, a greater and greater sense of unity with all. Now, Swamiji also describes this dilemma that people feel, which is when you look at the immensity of this creation, even scientifically, um, one has a, a, an inclination to think, well, what difference do I make? You know, it's just like, what can one person do? We were talking about this last night. I mean, do we really have a responsibility to the planet? Everything seems to be just going on anyway. I mean, why should we even try? Well, Swamiji puts it, first of all, he says, you have to start somewhere. You know, we have to start somewhere to become an expression of those qualities of consciousness which are going to make us happy. And the reason why we have to start somewhere is we are compelled by our inner nature to seek satisfaction and happiness. And that's the key that we have to realize. We can't do nothing because cosmic law cannot be flaunted, flaunted, that's the word. We have to live according to the way we are made And bliss comes to us through certain avenues to contradict those cosmic laws causes us to suffer. And it's suffering, it's the experience of suffering and the desire to escape it and the longing for bliss and the desire to have it. That's what forces us to do everything and that's what what defines, quote, right action from wrong action. It's not right or wrong because we go to heaven because of heaven and hell and some judge or dogma. It's right or wrong to our own experience. So we need to be able to start with this apparent individuality but use it properly. And that's what he's talking about in this course about material success that many people use that individual 
individuality powerfully, but not properly in terms of their ultimate fulfillment. And he wants us to do both. That's what he's trying to get us to do here. So we, we recognize that the ego is an element. The ego is what makes us feel separate and distinct. But we also realize that the ego is just a point of view. And we can, we can back ourselves away from that point of view. And the more we do that and come closer and closer to our point of origin, which is this divine power within us, the more everything will work. We will activate greater and greater power in the universe and therefore that which we seek to manifest will be successful and in the act of successing it of, of, of attaining that success rather than reinforcing the wrong kind of ego we will actually uh, dissolve what binds us now the other aspect that he puts in here which is really worth mentioning is these four elements of consciousness mon, buddhi, ahankara and chitta these, these four levels of consciousness are among those um, sort of aphoristic ideas of Swamiji's that are really worth keeping because we have this idea that we should be detached. And, but we don't always understand what that means. So Swamiji defining these four realities, which I'll just describe in a practical sense in this way. Mon is that aspect of consciousness which is just simply aware. And Swami uses the example always when he describes this. This is, according to Master, this is centered at the top of the head, and this is also relevant. And it's just, it, it simply perceives without discriminating what it perceives. So in, in, the, in this state of pure mind, as they call it, which almost no one experiences, Swami adds, um, if, you saw, if you saw the vibrational form of a horse it would just look like vibrations to you. There would be no part of your consciousness that could define what that is. It would, because you, there's no discrimination at that level. By that I don't mean that there's a lack of discrimination. There's just no dividing up. The, um, the second, the, the next level is buddhi. And, um, let's see, moon, yes, buddhi. And buddhi is the intellect. And the intellect is able to identify and describe. So the intellect, when buddhi comes into play, the intellect comes into play, the spiritual eye aspect of creation, you would say, oh, that form of vibration is a horse. You know, there's Lisa, there's Anna, there's Edwin. But it's still, it's just completely neutral. When spirit vibrates like that, it's called a horse. When spirit looks like this, it's called Edwin. When spirit looks like this, it's called a a Volkswagen Beetle. You know, it just has a name. But to be able to say that doesn't bind you to anything. You're merely perceiving a level of reality. It's a fact. Mon is a fact. Buddhi is a fact. Okay, ahankara is, the, is centered at the medulla. And that's the point where um, the ego gets involved and knows its own position in relation to things. So you would look at that point, once the medulla where the ego is centered, the ego activates the discernment and the mind, or rather the mind activates this way, and then suddenly you're an individual with an ego, and you see that horse and you say, oh, that's my horse. That means I'm responsible for that horse. That's the one that is related to this unit of consciousness. You know, I exist, it exists, and we have this relationship with each other. And at that level, you can say, this is my husband, this is my son, this is my job, this is my house. 
And all those things are still just facts because these are the karmic conditions in which we find ourselves. But what Swami points out very powerfully is there's no bondage at that point because you're still just dealing with facts. You were born to this mother and this father and these are the identifications. People sometimes try to break that attachment by pretending not to be able to discern that. They don't call it my body. Now when, when Ananda Ma didn't call it her body, it was because there was no um, ego. There was no identification with it. It was simply a body. But we're identified with it. It's my body. But then chitta comes in and chitta is, this, is feeling. Chitta is conditioned, happiness conditioned by circumstances. And so that point you say, oh, it makes me so happy when I see my horse. And of course, then you're suddenly bound by the converse. Oh, I've lost my horse and now I have to feel terrible. So it's, and that's centered in the heart. So that's why we talk about the likes and dislikes of the heart are the point where you become engaged and bound to maya. And, and that's, that's vitally important because people, because if we live in this world, we have to take responsibility for that which has been given us to be responsible for. Kriyananda calls himself, calls himself, Kriyananda, an event for which he is responsible, which I, I think is a wonderful way to say it. I have this peculiar ability to speak, which I find a little peculiar also. I don't just mean to talk, but to just open my mouth and talk seemingly without end which I find also rather interesting. And I often will comment about what she can do. And I don't mean it to be pretentious in any way. It's just that there's a very distinct sense that it, it happens. You know? And I know it happens, and I'm the one who's making it happen. But it's, it's, so, um, it's, it's so not really connected to anything that I can identify with, really. It just happens. Um, Haridas used a great phrase once when he said, when he said when people compliment him on something, he says he feels like something inspiring happened and he got to be there. Which is a very, really nice way to use your intelligence, your booty, um, and even to understand that you got to be there, but not to, to identify it so deeply as me or not me that it, that it becomes binding. So all of us moving through this world, this is what Swami is suggesting to us, that we engage in it completely and use all of these elements, but don't allow the whirlpools of feeling, chitta, vrittis. Don't allow those vrittis to build up. Because that's the only point at which we work against our own interests. It's not dynamically being ourselves. It's not dynamically engaging and perceiving and acting. It's when we allow ourselves to be bound by those vrittis. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? And all of those, you see, are impositions from the outside. In his book, um, the, the book that came out, let's see, the little book, uh, I can't even, Rays of Wisdom, Light, something like that. It's not Living Wisely, Living Well. It's the one that he wrote just before that, which was all the um, uh, images. Images of Wisdom, I think it's called, or something like that. One of the little aphorisms in there, this little paragraph long thing, he writes it like this. Something happens, and we become interested in it. And as we become interested in it, we begin engaged in what's really going on. We become committed to having it happen one way or another. And then that commitment begins to agitate us. Our likes and dislikes begin to agitate us. And that agitation is unpleasant, and we gradually work ourselves out of all the involvement of likes and dislikes. And when we finally get back to ourselves, we realize 
it never had anything to do with us at all in the first place. I mean, he's talking about incarnations, that we actually are this infinite spirit, but we get interested in doing all this, we suffer through it, we work our way out of it, and we realize it was irrelevant from the beginning. It, the, in, the whole thing was created by our false identification with our happiness with that event, not with the doing of it. Because you see the masters come into this world, look how powerfully they commit themselves. They are, they are totally committed but their happiness is not conditioned by what they're doing. That's why Master could be William the Conqueror. And that's why he was so successful, so powerfully successful, because he, he, he was never confused by his likes and dislikes. He just simply could use his discrimination and his sense of personal responsibility, but he was not confused by wanting it to be one way or another. He was able just to move through and know what had to happen, put his full energy behind it, and it wouldn't make any difference. I'm reading the Mahabharata story just for fun again recently. and You know, everybody gets killed in that story. When I've, I've told the story um, as, you know, as an entertainment, as a spiritual entertainment, um, I, I say to people, you know, is it over yet? No, it won't be over till everybody's dead. Everybody has to be dead before this is over. And so all the way through, because it's a battle, everybody's always sacrificing their life and they're all just about to die. But it's actually really rather inspiring in a certain sense because they're kshatriyas, they're warriors, they're committed to this cause, they're going to do their very best and they're all going to die at the end and they know it. And it's like, it's all right. It's long how we die is more important than whether or not we die. And that's really how we have to feel about our lives, how we live, you know, and how we die is what matters, not really. It's inevitable anyway. All right, let's take a short break and then we'll... Go to the second part of this lesson. Um, The second half of this lesson, which Swamiji calls the application, is basically, okay, given this reality, which is really the last 25 lessons, plus just this simple description of who we really are and where our fulfillment really lies, how do we behave? And so Swami just spins out 20 principles, and it's interesting because these same principles have been appearing in various others of his writings, Sadhu Beware and the book about renunciation, which are serious books about overcoming the ego. Swamiji has talked in terms of um, the Naya Swami order, the new renunciate order for the new age, which he's just launched last year, describing that in... Uh, when, when Adi Shankaracharya, some thousands of years ago, created what we think of as the order of sannyas, the Swami order now, or reorganized it, it already existed, he, he made it in terms of external behaviors. I mean, like, you, don't, you, you move every three days, you don't own any property, you don't handle money. External things that would diminish your sense of egoic involvement in the world. But as Swamiji describes, at that time in the evolution of the, uh, the evolutionary state of the planet, the yugas, you couldn't talk directly to people about the fact that their whole sense of self was just an illusion, just like we talk about now, because the, the overall level of consciousness wasn't high enough. So he worked at it indirectly by setting up all these external behaviors. You renounce all these external things and then hopefully it will lead you to renouncing the only thing that you really have to renounce, which is your identity with your ego. Because once you have renounced that, it doesn't really make any difference how you live. So the renunciate order that he's launched, the Naya Swami order, is much more about renouncing the ego itself, 
and then modifying the way you live. But the modification is less important than the actual internal renunciation. So among other things, um, being a single person is not a requirement of being a sannyasi. You can be married sannyasis because it isn't just a question of external conditions. So what Swamiji is describing here in this lesson is, okay, you're going to be ambitious, you're going to work, you're going to make money, you're going to have a position in the world, but here's how you turn it so that it becomes um, ego-dissolving rather than ego-building. So if, if one simply studies just these 20 points even and really sincerely works with them in, in one's business life, you'll see it will make a huge difference in how you feel. So I'm going to go through them, not at great length. He doesn't, they're not complex. The first one, he says, tell yourself that anyone who works under you is actually working with you and that he's your co-worker in the same enterprise. A very simple beginning. Don't define yourself as having this position that puts you in a superior relationship to others. Embrace everyone is working with you. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't or you aren't a decisive leader. You can be a very decisive leader, but if you have an inner sense of cooperation with people instead of power over them. Um, I know sometimes people use the word, people report to you instead of working under you, which is a, you know, a way to say it. You're responsible for their project. But it's much more inside yourself, out of this respect that you have for others. When I worked for Swamiji as his secretary, which I did for a number of years, It was so astonishing to work for him because he paid my salary himself. He knew that I had no other priority except to work for him. He didn't misunderstand it for a moment. And he never presumed that I would even show up at what to speak, that I was just there to do things for him. He never defined me in terms of I work for him. It was I was there, and if I wanted to help him, well, wasn't that wonderful? And he would always present it to me just like that. Like, you know, would you mind if you're not busy? Perhaps you could consider, you know, would, you know I, I need this. Do you think you'd be able to do that? But it was just completely respectful, never wavered. Because it wasn't a, it wasn't a management technique. It was actually the way he thought about it. We work together. Who cares whether I do this or you do that? Together we make the enterprise work. And you see how that just cuts off right at the beginning, the thought that I'm important because of my position. Then he says, share with others the credit for any success you achieve. Resist the temptation to call attention to any part you played in that success. Underline that one. Resist the temptation to call attention. Oh yes, it was a great idea. I'm so glad I had it. You know, the head office really didn't want to listen to me, but in fact, they finally did and they learned, didn't they? All the different ways that you want to just sort of say, and of course, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been there. You know, the thought comes in. Just, it happened. It was fate. It was karma. It was destiny. Swamiji says, truth is impersonal. Really doesn't matter who thinks of it. If it's a true idea, it's a true idea. What difference does it make who is the instrument? And when we also, when we think like that, we don't narrow the channel. Because the other factor, he says here, is if we put too much emphasis on ourselves, we stretch our little wave farther and farther from the ocean and we gradually close out the channel. So this is to not make yourself important in front of others, but it's also deeply not to misunderstand within yourself. Oh, look what I did. That's what I was sort of saying about, you know, look how she can talk. 
look how something inspiring happened. Look how a success took place and I got to be there. It's like success is going to happen and you get to go along for the ride. Not, oh, look, this was my part. Resist the temptation. I love the way he phrases that because that's exactly what it is, isn't it? To just want to get a little puffed up. Also, it's very interesting, Swami writes elsewhere, do not contemplate your past successes too much because then you live in the past and you lose the present. If you're thinking all the time about all the good things you did then, then you're not watching for the good things you can do now. And you're defining yourself by a reality that isn't anymore. So you want it for your own sense of self-identity. Because, and the point number four, which I'll skip three and come back to it, try not to create a mental image of yourself that you will then have to defend. If you're always calling attention to your own part in the success, then you're creating a mental image of yourself as the one who has the good ideas. And then even when other people have good ideas, you're disinclined to let them have them because I'm the one who has good ideas. And so you have to defend that position. You have to defend to be the one who knows. So try not to have a mental image that you have to defend. Be interested in what's true. Just be interested in what's true. And if we put our emphasis on what's true and what's going to work, Swamiji, who's extremely emphatic and forceful, and he, he also says he'll change in a second. Because he's interested in what's true. And if somebody tells him something that he can see is more valid than what he was saying, or, or shows why what he was saying wasn't valid, he'll just let go in a second. Because he's not interested in being the one who makes the decision. He's just interested in having a good decision made. So then he says, try not to defend yourself against people's accusations. This is very hard. This is very tricky. Well, you know, you were really incompetent in what you did the other day. You really lost your temper the other day. No, I didn't. I was provoked. Try not to defend yourself against other people's accusations. And that just really think about that. How many times when people want to tell you that you did something not quite right, the first thing you want to say is, that's not true. He says, accept them silently instead with good cheer. Oh, interesting. The ability to bear the negative opinions of others against you will be a feather in your cap. The very thought will make you aware of a growing freedom and happiness within. So this is really not only about harmony in the workplace, but this is also about yourself. So people, somebody says to you, well, you didn't really do that very well, did you? And then you have to say, yes, I did, yes, I did. But if you just say, hmm. I mean, and it's either true or it isn't. Just accept it with good cheer. I I laughed once when somebody was really criticizing me very validly for... um, some really serious mistakes I made in carrying out my responsibilities, the thought that popped in my head and popped out of my mouth was, do you think if I knew how to do this job, I'd still be doing it? (laughs) And it just was like, it's been such an answer to me, to criticism, because of course I don't know how to do this job. If I did, I would have transcended it and gone to something else by now. So when somebody comes and tells you that you've messed up in some way, well, gee, what a surprise. Of course I'm here because I don't know how to do it yet. Why would I be perfect in this? It would be too boring. I'd have to go on. It was a conversation stopper too, which in a good way, it was like, what can you say against that? Well, yeah, that's right. We're all here to learn, aren't we? So we don't defend ourselves. We just accept it with good cheer because we have no mental image that we have to preserve. We're not always trying to draw credit to ourselves for how good we are. We're just relaxed. Things happen. 
It says, but here's another point, which is a very interesting one. Don't meet praise with denial. To do so might be construed by others as impugning the other person's, person's good taste. Now, I, I learned this in reverse because there was this woman musician, this woman I knew many years ago. She used to play her instrument beautifully. And whenever I would say, oh, you played so beautifully, she said, no, I didn't. I just made lots of mistakes. And I finally said to her, well, what you're really saying is that I, don't have, I can't even tell whether you played well or not. So I compliment you and you insult me. I don't really think this is a good idea. Do you see? Somebody tells you that, you that you did something well and you say, no, I didn't. What you're really saying is, well, you, don't, you can't judge. Somebody once turned it in a charming way. Why he said, um, I said, you, it was just beautiful that what you did. He said, oh, you're too easily impressed. <laughs> Which was a kind of charming way of doing the same thing and I, it just made me laugh. But he says, um, when he goes on about that same point, he says, um, you know, he says, answer it in this way. You know we all have within us a certain power if we keep ourselves open to it. God is the doer. And I appreciate what you've said, but the credit really belongs to God. So you don't say it wasn't well done because Bhuti can tell if it was well done. You know, if the sermon went well, if the song was beautifully sung, if the instrument was great, if the painting is beautiful, it is beautiful. And so we can all just sit there and say, wow, isn't that a beautiful painting? You know, and, and you happened to be there when it was painted. You might have even held the brush. Because Bhuti can just see that it was well painted. Ahankara can say, yeah, it's a gorgeous painting and I painted it. That's why you'll hear Swami say things like, and then this is my favorite song and I think this is the best book I've written and this is a great story and I think this will be a bestseller and they want to do this about it and I got all these letters and people will say, oh, what ego. But there's no ego in him. He just, God acts through him and he likes what God does through him. He thinks it's very nice. It would be rude not to. And if it isn't good, you should keep working at it until it is. Do you see the difference? But you're not, your happiness isn't conditioned, so you don't have this position you have to defend. See, when you're defending some mental image, then when people say you're good, it's very important to you that you'll be good. So sometimes in reverse, you'll try to say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. But by doing that, you're just, again, just drawing all this attention to yourself. And it just either is or it isn't. Yeah, I liked it too. I thought it came out really well. That's just a very simple thing. I learned that with cooking because cooking was so unimportant to me that I just didn't have, I had so much ego in everything, but not in cooking because it was just a useless preoccupation as far as my life was concerned. But I did it. So I would say, oh, the soup, it's so good. You'll just love it. And it took me a long time to realize how funny that might have sounded to other people. But I learned from that that if the soup was good, it was good. The fact that I made it didn't mean anything to me, so therefore I could just say it like that. It's when we're really attached to it that we can't just call it what it is. Vritti. Ahankara is okay. It's when the vrittis get involved. Chitta gets involved. Okay? When circumstances prove you to have been right in some matter, never announce smugly. Oh, I said it would turn out that way, didn't I? (laughs) Same thing, isn't it? Resist the temptation. It's not attractive, and more than that, you see, it just reinforces this idea of self. It happened well. Consider yourself lucky. Lucky guess on my part, huh? You know. Don't point out to others their flaw of ego-centeredness. 
unless you have, you know, the divine wisdom and mandate to do so, which I think one should be very careful about deciding whether you have that. He says, because when you challenge others about their egocentricity, you expose yourself to their almost inevitable counter-argument. Well, I saw you behave in a pretty bad way the other day too. You're, you're telling me, you know, all this like this. And then um, he said, of course, that's not a bad thought to ponder. But inviting it can have harmful consequences because negative reminders can become negative affirmations in your own mind. You know, we're all very sensitive. And so somebody counters by telling you what's wrong with you. The, the capacity not to be pulled down by that and a little discouraged is very great. So he warns you, just don't play that game at all. Just don't take it on yourself to correct others is what he's really saying. Even if their egos are just blatant, be very, very careful before you do that. Because he gives you one reason here, because they'll just point the finger back at you and your very, your very compulsion to point it out in others is almost always a sign that it's also in you. That's part of it. That's why you have to be very careful to be so detached that you're able to say it. So just before... He, he's not saying to say well, you know, that letter, really, the paragraphs could be reversed. He's talking about really pointing the finger of egocentricity in others. It's just a dangerous thing to to get engaged in. Then you get in this, no, I'm not really. It's my job to tell you what's wrong with you, and it becomes a terrible mess. And he says, in answer to anyone who criticizes you, never justify yourself, he's very specific here, by quoting favorable remarks made by others about you. It's so common when, when people try to buoy themselves up. Well, Mary said and Sue said that they really never saw a presentation better than the one I did, especially when you criticize. Somebody says, well, you know, I think it could have been a little better. Well, Henry liked it and so did George. It's, it's like it's, when you even hear it, it's so weak. It's like you're just trying to get everybody on your side. Look, truth is truth. And most people's opinions are wrong anyway. And why did Henry say he liked it? Is George just buttering you up? I mean, you don't really know. And do they have the discrimination to tell? It's, it's an extremely weak uh, argument. Just if somebody tells you that something's wrong, just accept it. If everybody else liked it, fine. Then you, then you just weigh all that in the balance and decide what the truth is. But it's, it's an interesting because people do that a lot. And whenever they do it, it has a really funny feeling to it. Everybody else liked it. In other words, you moron. (laughs) It's many, many things that are wrong with doing that. In the same way, never say everyone says so in justification of any statement of yours that others have rejected. This is the same thought. Don't try to make your... um, Don't try to make your case um, in the court of public opinion. this This is a tricky one that... Through the, through the years at Ananda, we've all had to learn to work with this. Um, I always put it to myself, look, if it's a true idea, people will eventually see it. And if you just try to win by numbers and make the other person insecure, thinking that they're going against the tide, I mean, nobody is working with wisdom at that point. Everybody's just trying to overpower each other with numbers. So just don't bother. You know, like Swamiji says, try to win with sweet reason. If others like it, and they've given you specific reasons that this person may not have thought of, you can say, well, consider. You know that 
this that has this benefit, and maybe that's a, the source of somebody else's thought, but you're justifying it with the facts. You're not just justifying it by, by putting chit marks on this side and chit marks on this side. You see, those are all external based. Since most opinions, Swami says, have little value anyway, try rather to seek justification by emphasizing the good sense of the proposal you're making. And then number 10, give to God everything you do, even if the profits of that action accrue to you personally. What he means by that is, even if you're making lots of money or getting lots of praise or making lots of progress in your job, just always feel that it all goes to God. Oh, look, Lord, we've been promoted. (laughs) Oh, look, they really enjoyed it. Oh, isn't this nice? Look how much money there is more in the bank now. But just always have this sense that it's not something that I have. In other words, don't increase your ego identification with the external things that happen. If those things come to you, that was your object anyway, but feel that they belong to God. Nishkam karma, which is action without desire for the fruits of that action. Um, That advice leads to liberation and perfect fulfillment. Because then you're always having fun. Because then you've noticed that my action brought this result, but you haven't let your happiness be conditioned by it. It's just something inspiring happened, something successful happened, something really notable happened, something of world renown happened. But it isn't really mine. It was the energy that flowed through me and it belonged to God. I was thinking about this. I forgot to mention that this business of ahankara being here, the ego, when the ego gets way too involved at the medulla, energy literally can't flow. And the energy gets blocked and doesn't really flow to the spiritual eye. The energy flows in through the medulla, but needs to be inspired from the spiritual eye, from this uh, uh, point of understanding. But when there's too much ego concentration, the energy gets blocked, even physically. Isn't that interesting? It was was an interesting aspect of the physical location of these things. Number 11, whatever happens to you outwardly, remain inwardly non-attached and even unaffected. Remember, nothing can touch the eternal you, which is your soul. Now, you have to practice this on both sides of the ledger. That doesn't mean you're not delighted when things happen. But you're delighted because things happen, not I am now delighted and my happiness is not conditioned just because good things happen. But isn't this nice? Everything went well. Wasn't it a beautiful event? Isn't it marvelous how we're succeeding? We got the Neiman Marcus contract. Isn't that great? Be happy. But inwardly, you're not really changed. You're not different this morning before you got that contract. And therefore, you won't be different tomorrow when you lose it, inevitably. You know, it's, it's not really about me. It's just the events that are swirling around me. And I participate in them as I need to. But I don't allow them to define me. I don't become so attached to them that they become me. When people accuse you of anything for any reason, whether fairly or unfairly, don't let your feelings become ruffled. Hard, isn't that? Well, how dare you speak to me like that? Some, uh, it's sort of fun when you're not really involved. Sometimes people say the darndest things. Every so often people will say something so stunningly insulting. They don't necessarily mean it. I mean, they don't even mean to insult you. Sometimes they do. But sometimes they just say it. They don't have any concept of where they're going with it. And this is so interesting just to see the things that happen. So don't react. 
Don't let your feelings become ruffled. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Don't become agitated about it. Of course, it goes back to don't defend yourself, don't try to draw credit. If those people are right, and then he also says more, if those people are in the right, don't be ashamed, ashamed because shame will only affirm your ego consciousness. Because shame says, oh, I did something wrong. Oh, how horrible, I did something wrong. Now this wrong thing is me. That's what shame is. That's why guilt is so useless, because what all that guilt does is just deeper and deeper identify you with the error. The error happened. Okay, the error happened. But if I get all ashamed and guilty about it, then I have so deeply identified with it that now it'll be even much harder. I have not, now I have not only the error, but I have this profound sense of claiming it as my own. And when you claim an error like that, you think you're diminishing yourself, but you're not. You're building your ego consciousness. That's not what you want, even when they're right. Oh, you know, you were so out of line at that meeting. You just, everything was messed up. Why didn't you keep your mouth shut? I don't know. The devil made me do it, you know. It's just like, there I was. I did. I was a mess. What can I say? You know, that's just where it is. Um, He says, um, if others are wrong, if others are wrong in their accusation, just say to yourself, what does it matter? Their opinions may matter in the effect they have on you at work, but you will win a better opinion from others if you take their accusations cheerfully and reply with a smile, well, yeah, you're right. I'll try to do better next time. I mean, when people accuse you, 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 you learn this after a while. If people accuse you and you just say, yes, you're right, conversations are very short. <laughs> And the whole thing is just like people come to you with this big fight and if they're right and you just say, yeah, you're right. I really don't know what I was thinking. Whoa, I was shocked too when I heard that come out of my mouth. <laughs> there you are. Where do you go from there? And, and it, it, the whole incident's become very small that nobody can play off of you. And if, you, if they're wrong, it's better just to say, hmm, amazing. Hmm, wow. Wow, so thank you for sharing that. Or like Sri Yukteswar, I love Sri Yukteswar. Hmm, perhaps you're right. I love that. That's what he says to do with accusations. Hmm, perhaps you're right. You haven't actually conceded anything, but you've also taken all the argument out. Hmm, perhaps you're right. I love that. That one is super. I I have trouble doing that one without a smile, though. If someone sees himself as your rival, don't buy into it. Don't respond with antagonism. Swami says, the petty, competitive spirit of others cannot be avoided. It's part of the play of life, which becomes actually enjoyable once once one learns a non-attachment. What comes of itself, let it come. If people want to, you know, play this sort of, you know... I'm going to go through the door in front of you. I'm going to get the front seat. I'm going to get the limousine and you're going to have to take the taxi. It's like, who cares? If, if people are trying to let them have it, don't, don't play the game with them. I mean, and Swamiji says, yes, their opinions may affect you. They may actually be able to make things happen around you, but you'll lose more by getting engaged in it. Just let it play itself out and, and re, re, keep your inner dignity. Don't get sucked into the game. These are hard things to, to work out. That doesn't mean... Now, I always think of Sri Yukteswar. 
who when unscrupulous people tried to take his family land, he just filed lawsuits and kept his property. That doesn't mean you let people roll over you. But you don't have to get into the pettiness of it. You know, just observe what they're doing and think strategically about what you need to do in order to respond appropriately. But don't get sucked into, how dare you treat me like that and I'll show you and, you know, and I'm gonna, not going to refill the coffee pot because I know you're after me. You know, that's just sort of, just the things that people do. Office politics are simply power games. Avoid them whenever possible. The best power game of all is to befriend everyone. What need have you, after all, to judge anyone? Everyone's karma is his own. The responsibility for working it out is his also. It's a very interesting thing. So if somebody's a rival to you and feels the need to come back to that one, to compete with you in this petty way, if you, in your heart, genuinely wish them well, and are genuinely sympathetic to whatever bizarre need is causing them to behave this way, it doesn't, they won't necessarily come around to your point of view. But oftentimes you can convert people by having a genuine interest in their well-being. And it's not something you can fake. You have to really feel it from your heart. That doesn't mean you don't discriminate. The, the buddhi may be there. You may be able to say, this person's behavior is really not good. But as Swami writes, don't worry, their karma will catch up with them. It doesn't, you don't have to be the one. You don't have to worry about making things right. Just let them have it. And just be genuinely desirous of their well-being. That doesn't mean you have to be a pushover. That doesn't mean you have to let them get away with things if it's not appropriate. But in your heart, you wish them well. It's not personal. You don't take any satisfaction from getting the best of them. And when you really befriend everyone, people who really do that... I have a friend who's in prison. He's, never, he's been in prison for years. He's never had an ounce of trouble. Because, uh, really, seriously, he's never set himself above anyone. And he just has this really genuine interest in everyone around him. And he's just managed to skate through all of the things that happen. Because about of his, a sincere from his heart, he's just, he's just a very attentive accepting person of what goes on around him. It's their karma, it's not mine. And that's a very tricky situation to manage. Swami says, be truthful, sincere, and always kind. That It's a very interesting mental exercise to try to be truthful and sincere, but not to speak ill of anyone. And it's fun, because it's fun to try to figure out how to say the truth, but not to say it in an unkind way or in a negative or uncomplimentary way. Oh, yes, that person really does have a very original idea about how things can be done. Yeah. Wasn't it surprising? Not at all what any of us expected, was it? (laughs) You know, there's nothing unkind about that, but that's also sincere. You could say it differently, like, what were they thinking? That would be another way to say it. But that's not very kind. But to say, oh, it was just beautiful when it was bizarre and awful, is not necessarily sincere. But when you go back to, you're befriending everyone. Well, that was, you know, they, they put forth their best effort. But you don't want to be fatuous. You don't want to say everything is lovely when it's not. Because it's just, it's not magnetic to be like that. Here's another interesting one. Don't hesitate to say, I can, if you think you might succeed at some task. 
It is no sign of humility to tell others, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that. That's excessive ego consciousness because God through you can do anything. So you should be confident appropriately and and don't hesitate to be confident, but inwardly give the source of your confidence, the divine, to be too self-effacing and not really have any sense of your... Well, Swami writes it earlier in this letter, it's not so much about self-esteem, he speaks a little bit against that, is being too inclined toward the ego. But have self-respect. Which is, I'm a child of the divine. I can figure out how to do this. God can show me how to do this. And so if, if you feel it, say, yes, I can do that. Even if you're not quite sure how you're going to, because you have the confidence that God will help you. In other words, have confidence that God will work through you. And, and act on that confidence. Don't be afraid to act on that confidence. And then he says, ambition can be a fault if it's harbored only for personal ends. But if you're ambitious for your project, especially if that project is to help others or to serve God, it's a virtue. And this is what you see exemplified in the saints. They're intensely ambitious for what they're doing. So don't think a lack of ambition is a lack of ego. Not at all. Sometimes it's a lack of courage, a lack of confidence in God. It may be, in a lack of ambition can often be tremendous egoic consciousness of laziness, of self-concern, of fear, of unwillingness to put out energy, of, of lack of faith in God, and the ability to say, yes, we can do it, we will do it, we're going to make this happen, because you're, you're believing in God and willing to act as his instrument, and that's when the ego dissolves, you see. But if you follow all the other rules, if you're just ambitious so that you can be powerful, that's not how wholesome. People often try to manipulate others or the circumstances around them, Live again, he says, by the principle, what comes of itself, let it come. You will find that if you can reject completely the tendency to manipulate others, things will somehow flow well and smoothly. What he means by this is don't always be calculating your own position and trying to think, well, how can I get in the head car? And how can I really get him to be on my side? And how can I sort of be the one who stands there and greets the boss first? And how can I get her to sort of get out of that position? Don't always be calculating your chess moves. Just respond with sincerity and kindness and don't always be wondering about your own position. And then you see people who are doing that. They're always trying to just make it work for themselves. You don't have to always be making it work for yourself. Try to be making things work as God wants them to work. And as Swami says here, you'll see it'll work out much better that way. Because if you're manipulating them, people are manipulating against you, and pretty soon you're just waves crashing against each other, and the one who has just remained calmly in the ocean is the one who has all the force at that point. And the whole premise of this course is where there is dharma, there is victory. So what he's listing out here is reject these petty, ego-based ways of having success and follow dharma. Follow it wholeheartedly with, with tremendous commitment and energy, and, and everything will come to you. He says, laugh with people, never at them. Never participate in unkind, hurtful humor. You know, a a good laugh when everybody's really having a good time, but pay attention to whether or not it's shifted into unkindness and, and don't participate. Never call anyone, particularly never a subordinate, stupid. It's a very interesting, he uses that specific word. Even if you feel so inclined... (laughs) Because I think sometimes people do things that seem really stupid. 
because non-judgment will help release you forever from ego involvement. I was remembering Swami's story about the first time he went to Assisi and he meditated in the Portuncula where St. Francis lived. And he said he felt such sweetness from Francis. He said just a sweetness that he could hardly imagine that human consciousness could have. And he prayed to Francis and he said, what, how is it possible for a human being to be so sweet? And he felt inwardly the answer was by never judging. By loving everyone as your brother and sister, but above all, by never judging. So you just don't want to just go at people and how, you know, what a bad thing you did. Just, if it wasn't good, if people made a foolish mistake and you're responsible, then you file that fact away and remember. But it's so debilitating to, to people and it's so unattractive and it's so unnerving to the people around you when, you, when they know that you're going to come at them with that comment. That comment is very um, self-destructive self-destru- when you receive that comment, to be told that you're stupid. That's very, very hard. It's also a very ugly word, and I find it interesting that he pulled it out specifically. And then the last one is, that victory is best, which is won through the use of willpower and through having faith in goodness as a greater power ultimately than evil. Those are his last teachings in this. Isn't that beautiful? The victory is greatest that is won through willpower. In other words, when we discipline ourselves and direct that energy in harmony with God's will, that is the real victory. Not the victory that's won passively, not the victory that just happens on us or inherited, but when we have to use our willpower and overcome, especially, he says, um, and, and, and through having faith in goodness, is a greater power ultimately than evil. In other words, where there is dharma, there is victory. Just always holding, using, in fact, using our willpower to hold that thought that God is in charge, God is ultimate goodness. If I stay in that reality, then everything else will follow. So that's Swami's guidance for us, how to live in the world. Do we like it? Yes, I think so. I feel the same. <laughs> okay.